Welcome to Free the Mind, Free the People, a podcast where we come together to empower each other through knowledge and discuss the issues that shape our everyday lives. All opinions and information shared in this podcast are held by the host alone and do not represent the stances of the University of Central Florida or Department of Sociology. Hi everyone, I'm Hallie Spencer. And I'm Marina. And today we're going to be talking about Marina's story. And if you watched our last bonus episode, which if you didn't, go watch it after this, we took some time and Marina interviewed me about my personal story and my family's story and how it related to my journey in sociology. And so today I have the privilege to interview Marina and we're going to hear more about her and her life story and what got her into sociology. And so let's get into it. (laughs) Um, So Marina, where were you born and where did you grow up? So I was born in a town called Mayagüez, Puerto Rico. Um, And that's like in the West Coast of Puerto Rico. So if you like surfing, you might have heard of it and have gone there. But yeah, so I was born and raised there until I was 12 years old. And I'm very, I'm still very connected to my culture and the memories that I have from there. So you mentioned you were there until you were 12 years old. What do you remember about being in Puerto Rico? So I definitely didn't have a broader sense of the culture. I mean, I was a child, (laughs) Um, but I do know, I remember mainly like the tradition. So like Christmas, Three Kings Day, all those things that we did and just being a student, going to school there and going to church there. Uh, So yeah, I, I remember being a lot more, living a more comfortable life than other students around me, than other kids around me. And that's because my dad, for for years, he worked as a supervisor in a, for a pharmaceutical company. And so we were pretty middle class until about 2008. Okay. So I don't know if a lot of people know this, but Puerto Rico is a territory of America, but it doesn't have statehood. And I think that there's some interesting stuff going on there. Do you... In your experience, do you did you understand the relationship of Puerto Rico to America when you were living there? Yes. So I think Puerto Ricans are very intentional, at least when I was growing up, going to school through elementary and high school, through high, elementary and middle school, sorry. They're very intentional about teaching us our story and our, our history as Puerto Ricans and our roots, what's not been erased. And so... I do remember learning about primarily the U.S. invasion of Puerto Rico in 1898 and how all of that affected our culture and, yeah, our, our culture as Puerto Ricans. So I have always understood it, even though I, I definitely don't know a lot about pol- politics. I'm not a politics expert when it comes to Puerto Rico. I, I do remember knowing that the relationship was unequal. It was always established that, you know, the U.S. invaded Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico is now relying on the U.S. for a lot of things. So that was the main thing that I knew. And also the fact that we're, what you said, so we're not a state, but we are a territory, which I call a colony because we don't have much self-determination we don't have autonomy for the most part we have this we live in like this in-between area where we are american citizens but we're not considered full americans and we are told that we're dependent on the u.s we're but we're kept dependent on the u.s and then we're also not we're also neglected because we're not told we're not seen as full americans so there's a whole like 
there's like a gap between Americans in the mainland and then Puerto Ricans on the island. And so the relationship is mostly, yeah, just a colonial relationship where Puerto Rico doesn't have much freedom, but it also has to depend on the U.S. because it's been so decimated over the years. So Right. And do you think there is a reason why the U.S. doesn't want to make Puerto Rico a state? Like, do you think that there's something going on more than just like, oh, I don't know. What do you think is going on there? Yes. So, again, for anybody watching from Puerto Rico (laughs) and just anybody in general, I'm not, again, I don't know the politics as well as I should. But what I do understand is that Puerto Rico serves as a place for production and imports, exports, all the things. It's it's sort of like a tool. It's like a like a trade, like a tool for, for trade in the US. So I think that the US mainly just wants to keep it because it is a resource that is readily available to them because they control it um, at the federal level. They also don't can't vote for the president. They cannot vote in the presidential elections because they don't have representation in Congress. But they can vote for the primaries, but they can't vote for the president. So, yeah, yeah they want to keep Puerto Rico as sort of like a, a resource and not so much as something that they are actually actively taking care of at all. Right. It seems like they care more about the production of what's going on there than the people that are helping produce that stuff in, in Puerto Rico. It seems like kind of like a, I don't know, I also don't know much about Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico obviously, but it seems like kind of exploitative relationship going on, yes. which is complicated and I honestly I didn't realize that you guys couldn't vote and like for uh president for some reason I just assumed you could I don't know why like that's fascinating to me lots of Americans Americans uh, on the mainland Mm -hmm. think that um I mean many of them also don't think don't know that we are a territory I've been asked if I'm if I am undocumented before and stuff like that so yeah there's a lot of again there's a gap. There's a, and I think it's a very intentional gap, but we, we couldn't get into this in this episode. <laughs> but it's definitely a very intentional gap between the Americans on the mainland and the Puerto Ricans. And yeah, it's a very frustrating, unequal relationship. So uh, why did you move from Puerto Rico to Florida in the first place? Yes. Yeah, so um, in 2008, the recession happened. And we all know the housing market crashed mm-hmm. and a bunch of other things happened. And Puerto Rico, the unemployment rate there, like, went through the roof. And so my dad was laid off. The company that he was working with uh, shut down. And so until 2012, when, which is when we moved over here, my dad was working for contractors. And that wasn't, he worked for, like, the power authority for a bit and a bunch of other jobs that I can't remember at this point. But it was just a very unstable life. And so about to, to get here, before I tell the story, the full story, the reason why we ended up in Melbourne, Florida, which is where we moved to, <laughs> um, it was because, so my uncle, who he actually passed away here um, of cancer, he moved, he was visiting here some people that he knew, some friends that he had. And so after all of that happened, over the years, we kept those connections and those relationships with those friends. And then they, when my dad was really struggling, they offered to, to, 
to just give him a place for a bit so that he could try and find a job here. Mm-hmm. And then, so my dad was here for a bit for some months. And then my sister, my younger sister, me and my mom came over. Um, and that's how we moved over here. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, a quick note, Rita and I have both lived in Melbourne, Florida. We lived there at the same time. Uh, without knowing that we both lived there at the same time, we met at UCF. And it's a very, I have to say, it's like, <laughs> Melbourne's a very interesting place to live. It's a very conservative place. So I can't imagine what it was like going from Puerto Rico to Melbourne as like the first place you lived here. So yes. that is very fascinating, just knowing the culture of Melbourne. <laughs> yes. We'll definitely but, talk more about that. Yes. <laughs> yes. So um, speaking of like that transition, basically, what was that transition like for you? And were there any big differences that you noticed or were they like, did you notice things immediately that were different or is it more over time that you started realizing differences existed? Yes. So the change was drastic immediately. Uh, Like I said, we were living a pretty comfortable life in Puerto Rico. My dad owned his own house. We had, we had a lot of things that we had to eventually sell to be able to have enough money to move over to the U.S. Um, And so we went from that to living. My dad eventually bought a trailer, which I think cost like a thousand bucks. And we lived there for the first year that I was in eighth grade. And so going into, so we went into a new country, new language, new people, new school. I was in eighth grade, which is a tough year (laughs) for most people, I think. And so yeah, so that was just going. I didn't know English, by the way. I The language wasn't too much of a barrier because, fun fact, in Puerto Rico, it is required for you to... They teach English in schools from elementary all the way through high school. So I could read it and understand it, but I couldn't... I wasn't a fluent speaker. So mm-hmm. I eventually had to adapt to that. But yeah, I think the major differences were the culture and the community that I was surrounded by, which was mostly white. And then I didn't know any Puerto Ricans and also the quality of life that we had because it actually ended up being worse than what we had in Puerto Rico. You know, of course it was going to get worse if we would have stayed, but before 2008, the quality of life that we had is nothing compared to what we then had here, thinking that we were going to a better place. So, and, and to this day, we live in low income, in low income housing. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we've really <laughs> advanced as much as that we would have liked. So there's definitely, it's, it's better than the trailer, <laughs> but <laughs> of course, you know, anything is better, mm-hmm. but yeah. So I think that it's just been a lot different than we expected. Right. Yeah. The true American dream coming to the U.S. thinking that it was going to be amazing and then not being able to move up the ladder because you're kind of just stuck there. Yeah. <laughs> that it feels like the true, the true actual American <laughs> dream that happens to a lot of people. Yes. And I just to add one more thing, like I, I do recognize that I am privileged in that I am a grad student right now. I have a bachelor's. I've been able to slowly advance in ways that my parents couldn't back in Puerto Rico. But I won't deny that 
still the standard of living that we have now, regardless of my achievements as an individual, is are they're not better than what we had before. So it's a complicated thing, as is everything. <laughs> yeah, that's extremely interesting. And uh, I'm glad you shared that because that's that's something really interesting to think about. And going off from that, how do you personally identify with your experience? Would you identify yourself as an immigrant or a migrant or something else altogether or neither? Is there a certain way that you most comfortably identify? So I haven't figured that one out yet. <laughs> I haven't. I, w- I want to ask. I just haven't gotten the chance to. I want to ask some immigrants that are not Puerto Rican. I would like to ask what they think about Puerto Ricans, whether they consider Puerto Ricans immigrants. Mm-hmm. Some people have used the word migrants, but that has been used in, for different groups of people as well. So I, I don't know. I think that what made me believe that I was an immigrant was that when I came here, I did know some immigrants from other Latin American countries. And so I was able to compare my experience to theirs in some ways. But I, again, I am a U.S. citizen. I hold that privilege because I don't have to go through many barriers to get here mm-hmm. um, and to stay here and live here mm-hmm. um, and just, yeah, just advance here. So I don't know. I feel like uh, I have similarities with immigrants, but I don't know if that's the term that I should use because I do respect the specific context and specific experiences of non-U.S. citizens who have moved here. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's very interesting and very nuanced. That's a very nuanced situation to find yourself in because, like, the experiences of others doesn't m- diminish your experience either, but also, like, you need to be able to respect, like, what other people have gone through as well. So that must be yes. like a very tough thing to have to like kind of go through and like think about what you truly want to identify with. It's so like going that's back to the whole like being a Puerto Rican, but also not being American, but also being an American citizen, but also. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not simple. <laughs> so as an immigrant or migrant from Puerto Rico, however you identify, what was it like? being in school during that whole transition? So school was mostly a blur for me because I was just trying to adapt. I was just trying to blend in, to be like the white people around me, (laughs) to not be noticed. And I I did become fluent in English in a matter of months because I already knew English. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but I do recognize that because I was trying so hard to fit in, I lost a lot of friendships with other Latin American people that that I had. And they they viewed me as somewhat of like a traitor, <laughs> like just stuck up because I just wanted to be with the white people. And I do not blame them. I regret that a lot because I feel like I could have found much more community than I did if I would have tried to um, to just learn more about their cultures. But again, going back to living Puerto Rico, growing up there, I don't, my experience is not the the universal Puerto Rican experience. So I'm not speaking for other Puerto Ricans, but for me and the kind of people that I was surrounded by, there was this idea that the U.S. is this country that protects us. They protect us. They are superior. You know, they're the best. Mm -hmm. So 
if you go and live, to, you, you move to the U.S., then that's even better. Like, you're at a better place. And also, if you get to be like them, if you behave and speak like them, then you're better off. So that was the thing. Like, I just had an inner conflict um, just trying to be, because I thought that the closest I was to the Americans, the better I was. And that's an awful, <laughs> an awful ideology. But again, it was imposed on a lot right. of us Puerto Ricans. Mm -hmm. um, so also there is a side of the argument that, you know, most of the people that I was surrounded by were white. So I also felt the pressure of just having more access to white people. I, all my friendships were, were, were with white women for the most part. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I also didn't have stable like, uh, friendships. So they just kind of trickled in and out. Um, and I was never really like able to find true people that I truly clicked with. Cause again, I didn't know a lot of Puerto Ricans in the Melbourne area. And, mm -hmm. but I was still, I was still very connected to my culture. So, you know, yeah, yes, that's it. <laughs> I feel like going to a new school, even when you're just like moving states from like within America, it's already extremely difficult. And I can't imagine all the added layers of difficulty from you coming from a different country and then having to like basically like forced to assimilate whether you wanted to or not being like, like scared into assimilating. And that must have made it even more complicated than I think like any I could have even imagined. Like that sounds so hard to do. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like maybe school wasn't where you really found your roots. Um, but was there a certain place or at any point did you feel like you truly found your roots or community in the US? So not really is the short answer. <laughs> so when I moved here, Again, I don't consider that I found community because I was never able to be Puerto Rican without either being made fun of or with, you know, being accepted. Mm -hmm. So I struggled at school because I was welcomed, of course. I was welcomed by people and everybody was friendly, but still that came with derogatory comments and jokes about my accent and mm -hmm. my culture, all those things. And then, so in high school, um, I was actually, I actually felt pretty invisible to people. Um, I don't know why it changed from middle school to high school, to high school probably. It might have been like my own perception. Like I just became more conscious as I grew up, but in high school, I was very, I felt very invisible. I had only a few friends. Um, and again, those friend groups shifted throughout the years. Um, and so, yeah, I, the other place that I thought I would find community in, and I didn't, was at the church that I attended for, for eight years. And um, a lot of the things that happened there that made me feel like an outcast was jokes about jokes about Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans and you know things like oh do you guys even have TVs over there do you guys even have cars whoa I didn't know oh my god yeah <laughs> and then also there were jokes about how it took a bit for me to respond 
because I knew English, but I still had to like translate in my brain. I wasn't, I wasn't as fluent as I am now. And so um, there were jokes that I took so long to respond and that I just stared at people blankly and stuff, which I, that wasn't necessarily true. I think they were exaggerating. Um, But yeah, it was like, it was me and my identity were the butt of the joke. So yeah. That's an awful thing to have to listen to all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you end up in the church and what was your experience like first going there um, and trying to find your community there? So growing up and I mean, I was already a teen, but yeah, growing up, growing up in the church. Um, well, first I my parents actually looked for a Hispanic church, for a Spanish-speaking church for us to go to. And that's where we thought that we would be for the rest of the time that we would live here. But as soon as we entered that church, the young people, the children, were told to go to the English-speaking church. So, and just from our context, in Florida and, like, in the South, where there's a lot of, there's just a high immigrant population or like Hispanics, Latin American people, they tend to have an English speaking church and then a a Spanish speaking church to have for both people. Um, And so my parents started going to that one and we were told to go to the English speaking church because we had to speak English because we were in America. And so I, I'm not going to (laughs) lie going back to the whole ideology about American it's basically American exceptionalism mm-hmm. keyword. <laughs> it's like a, like a, like a, what is it? Like a vocab word. Right. Yeah. Highlight that <laughs> word in your textbook. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about it later, but yeah, basically the belief that America is superior or, you know, that everything in America is better. And I bought into that. So I wasn't complaining, you know, I, I was like, Oh sure. I'll go and be like the Americans. I, I want to be with them anyway, because it's better than being here with the Hispanics. Um, <laughs> and so, yes, I wasn't forced, but I was strongly encouraged to go to that church if I wanted to blend in, which is what I wanted to do anyway. So that's how I ended up in a predominantly white church. Mm, interesting. And so what was it like being in a predominantly white church? Like, did you notice that there were inequalities between like the predominantly Hispanic church versus the predominantly white church? Yes, I think there were inequalities between and within each other. So between the churches, the Hispanic people, the Latinx people, um, they didn't have much connections to the American people in the English-speaking church. Um, So, and again, I'm using, by the way, I'm using these terms because this is what they they use the terms, the Hispanics called the predominantly white church, the Americans, and then the Americans called them the Hispanics. So I'm using their terms. Yeah. Yeah. So, but there was a gap between them. There wasn't very much socialization between either church. It was kind of like a separate, you know, we have that, they call it the Hispanic ministry. So we have that ministry for the people that need it, the people that speak Spanish. And then there's the other one. So, and then within each other, uh, the Hispanic church, we, especially my parents and just people that were not of the majority, ethnic majority there, which were Cubans, um, those other immigrants were always, they always felt a bit more marginalized. 
because the, there was a culture established and there were some beliefs established. Cubans had, those Cubans in that church specifically had a, an easier time uh, adapting to American culture and beliefs. So that was not as easy for other immigrants in the church. So that's the inequality that's going on there. Um, and then in the predominantly white church, people of color were marginalized as well. Um, they were part of the church, but the there was not that close relationship and that there was not a very inclusive um, culture in that church either. So, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting that it was not only but between, but within what was going on there. Um, so like looking back at your time in the church, do you feel like overall it was a positive experience or how do you look back on your time there? Cause I know you spent a lot, you said eight years and that's a lot of time to be giving yourself to a community. So what do you think about when you look back at your time there? Yes. Yeah, so it was a pretty long time. Um, and the, the experience that I had in church, and I think people that have been in churches before and have left will relate to this, but my experience was positive sometimes. I was involved, very involved. I was part of the choir. I was part of like the people that did the what we call the drama, the, the drama minister or whatever, <laughs> theater. Yeah. And then I was part of the youth band. I sang. I did a bunch of things. I had leadership. Like I was a leader, and I'll get into that later, but I was a leader in the youth uh, ministry. So I was very involved, and I enjoyed everything that I ever did there. Mm -hmm. So that was that. But then as I grew older, I, I became more aware of the issues there and I most of the things stem from the fact that their beliefs don't match who I am as a person and I'll explain more but I am a woman of color and I am very passionate I I like to take initiative and think outside the box I do not like being feeling controlled or like that, that my words or thoughts or actions are being manipulated by anybody um I just and I also can't be silent when I see something that's wrong I have to say it I will explode right. um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so those things m did not make me very popular in the positive way you know people like me of course but they there were things that we clashed right. on and this was it because just for those that might not know the denomination that I was part of, they did not, um, they did not allow women to be pastors or hold teaching positions over men. And um, so I, the privileges, privileges that I had in that church, I will say I was kind of like a hard pill that they had to swallow because I was needed and I was giving them my free labor. So <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I honestly did was allowed to do a lot of things that I wouldn't have been allowed to do otherwise mm -hmm. because I was needed. But but as as I became more aware of the issues, the pushback got worse against me and I so I agreed with some beliefs that they had. I will say I no longer 
believe these things, but I did believe the whole, you know, like being against same sex marriage and all these things. But I was more of the the believer of like, oh, let, yeah, we can believe this, but let people do whatever they want to do. And just that was an issue. <laughs> so then when I, when I um, grew up and started to become more involved in these issues, and I saw that these issues are not like LGBTQ rights, racial justice, immigrant rights, gender equality, those are not part of their agenda. So I had to walk away eventually. And I was actually, at that point, I was told that it was better uh, that they were better off if I walked away, that it was the better option for all of us. So, wow. Yes. <laughs> so it that, must a, have been, mm-hmm. that just must have been really hard to hear from a place that you had put so much time and effort and free labor and just like you found community in for such a long time and being told that it's best for both of you to just like break that relationship off. It's just like, I don't know, it's, that's tough. Yes. It is. <laughs> My gosh. So given all of that, mm-hmm. how, this is a question that you kind of asked me in my story, but yeah. how has your experience through the church and what you've been through affected your faith moving forward? So, um, a lot. <laughs> and it's, my faith is complicated. I, my sister's into crystals and astrology, all those things. And I'm just not, I'm very much a skeptic. And I was once told by a pastor, he didn't mean it in a bad way, but it's just funny looking back. He said that I was just a thinker, that I just analyzed things so much. And, you know, if you're in religion, that's not much, you don't do that much. Right. right. Because, you know, to question to question the beliefs is to question the whole faith. So, yeah. So I, for that reason, though, even though I, I've always been like somebody that, you know, thinks about these big abstract things, mm-hmm. that actually led me to God and to Christianity. And because I was looking for answers and I was looking for something meaningful. Mm-hmm. But after my experiences and after I have learned different things and just broaden my perspectives and just realize that honestly my beliefs just don't fit they don't fit what they believe so even if i wanted to call myself a christian or like a evangelical in the u.s right now mm-hmm. i don't fit i do not fit the definition so it's like a complicated thing i the only concrete thing I can say, I'm not an atheist, <laughs> um, but the concrete, the only concrete thing that I can say is that I don't belong to the evangelical church, the Christian church in the U.S. anymore. And I couldn't make myself belong to it if I, if I tried. Right. That makes sense. That's very interesting. And so moving on, like beyond the scope of just like, just your experience, how has this now affected your worldview today? And has it, influenced your perspective on society at all yes so i think that again my experience is just moving from puerto rico to here it really opened my eyes to a lot of the inequalities and racism homophobia xenophobia all those things that just became more blatant once i left my culture (laughs) and 
my country. So also just coming from an island that was and still is a colonized country in my view and many people's view, um, I, and then moving into a mostly white community, going through the whole experience at church. Um, so all of that kind of, all of that definitely made me who I am today and the things that I fight for. And mainly I'm just, in terms of like politics and beliefs and all of that, I just, I can all just, I can generalize it too. I'm committed to fighting against all inequality and any institution, belief, or individual that that promotes inequality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm definitely, I'm a firm believer in community. I think that power should be given back to people that, specifically people that are marginalized, that haven't had the power all this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also believe that a lot of institutions need to be abolished and transformed to better serve us again. Mm-hmm us, the people that have suffered under this system for so long. Mm-hmm. So those are the things that I believe in. And that makes me an idealist in some people's mind, you know. Um, I think that a lot of things that I ask for are <laughs> seen too radical um, or impossible or whatever. But, yeah. you know, based on my experiences, I'm just committed to not seeing people suffer in a system that doesn't serve them so yeah. i don't as i said i told a, i told a co-worker once i said i'm not i'm not interested in preserving a system that didn't have me or people like me in mind in the first place right so oh, exactly that's it <laughs> right. yeah and why and it's kind of ridiculous for people to be like oh that's that's ridiculous for you to think like, Oh, you know, like that's too much to ask. Is it really too much to ask? (laughs) Like it's clear who this is serving and who it's not. (laughs) Yeah. It's not too much to ask to make the world a better place. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think people might be a little too cynical about that where like people are so cynical to the point where they just don't think any change can be made. And I think that's where like, it's important to remember that change is possible, especially with community, like you said, and the idea of just being like, oh, everything's awful. Whoops, can't do anything about it. Like, that's just serving the people in power. And so you have to recognize when your cynicism is helping those, are like, our, our oppressors. Like, you have to recognize when it's just become too much for that. Mm-hmm. And so it's very interesting that people have told you that before. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so going off of that... Um, how has this whole experience, you kind of talked about this, but how has this whole experience shaped um, you being in sociology and also within a university and academia in general? Um, so in terms of sociology specifically, I think that my experiences have led me to find comfort and validation in sociology because it really helped me just understand the world that we live in and why things are the way that they are. And why my experiences, it validated my experiences, you know, right. what I've been always been told, like, oh, well, you know, yeah, that's just your experience. Like, in sociology, I've learned um, about how things actually work. So mm-hmm. there's that. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of school, like university, I was 
I'm surrounded by a very diverse group of people um, in undergrad. But then once I moved to graduate school, to the graduate level, and I have told this to faculty, they know that I said this, so it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have expressed like some concern about the fact that there is a lack of diversity. And I'm one of the few people, if not the only Puerto Rican from the island, um in our program in our cohort so um also this has led to some what i call some tone deaf um and offensive comments and attitudes from from white people in our program white students because there is a lack of diversity and so i think that that sort of thing i choose to be an optimist about it I think that sociology has a lot of scholars of color that have been talking about this for years, about the problem of diverse, lack of inclusion, specifically Mm -hmm. lack of inclusion in not just sociology, but academia as a whole. Um, And so I think that if sociology is open to listening to those scholars and Mm -hmm. to us students of color, there's definitely a potential for for more inclusion in the future. Mm -hmm. So yes. That's really interesting. I think it'd be interesting at some point to discuss why you think there is a difference between the amount of diversity in undergrad to grad school. And I'm sure there's a lot of things that we come up with why. That's really interesting to see just like that number diminish. And um, sociology is like sometimes seen as like a woke field or like we like to consider ourselves a woke field sometimes. But um, without like realizing that sociology has been run by white men for a very, very long time. And the true history of sociology has kind of been like completely whitewashed. And there's just like a lot of black sociologists and sociologists sociologists of cover, color during the beginning of its inception and that were just kind of just like phased out and not talked about. And we don't really discuss the true beginnings of sociology and academia because of that. So the history of sociology has been whitewashed completely and it's obviously still being seen today and I think it's really important for us to see more diversity come into the field and I hope that's something that we can maybe inspire more people coming into the field too because it's it's something that needs to change not sociology like all over but also within sociology (laughs) so yeah that's really really interesting um and so going into your work in sociology how has your experiences affected your research interests and has that kind of like guided you to certain things you want to study? Yeah, so I would say that my experiences are very like directly um, associated with my interest in sociology. So my main interest, as I mentioned in the, like the very, very first episode, are gender, race, uh, sociology of religion, but more specifically Christianity. and also recently Christian nationalism. So all of those things, um, obviously they connect to my experience as a woman of color in a predominantly white church, and also living here through 2016 to 2021, where the political climate changed completely, and a lot of the sentiments that were there already just came to the surface. And, And a lot of people were just, saying, hurting and attacking people of color in a bold way. Um, And so I just realized that with my career in sociology, and again, 
we both are very passionate about public scholarship and public sociology, which we keep mentioning it, but basically it just means, you know, applying our knowledge towards social change Mm -hmm. and educating the public. So I just realized after living through all of that, I realized that I want to make my career as a sociologist and my interest in sociology, not just for me to learn more about women in the church, um, but also to create social change and to fight against those inequalities. Cause that's to me, that's the purpose. That's the purpose. And I know we agree on that. (laughs) We agree that that is the purpose of our discipline and the future of our discipline too. Right. That's really important. And something about like the past sociologists that have kind of been kicked out of this field is basically because they were too political and public sociologists and were trying to create change and not just sit in there like armchair and think. And so um, it's really important that this is like a, a place for you to like make change and find ways to make change. And um, I feel like that's just something we've agreed on for a long time, which is also making this like a really fun process to see how people will respond to us in our yeah. hopes to create more public sociology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but going forward, how do you want your experience to be added to this podcast? And what do you think it can add um, moving forward? So I, I would love to talk more about Christianity and Christian nationalism and social inequalities as a whole throughout this podcast. Um, and I think that also my, all of these interests connect to my previous research, my undergrad thesis, which was on conservative Baptist women and their experiences within the church. And that included white women and women of color. So those, there was a very huge difference between both of those experiences. But yeah, I would love to talk about my research in the past and my my goals for my research in the future um because i think those things are specifically religion and sociology and in society as a whole i think that that needs to be talked about more especially after the january 6th insurrection (laughs) where there were christian flags at the capitol and i will continue to talk about that (laughs) of course i hope you do (laughs) um and so the one last big question to ask you with this. Um, if the listeners could take one thing away from your story, what would you like it to be? So first, um, as we discussed in the previous episode about your story, that the main thing that we want to communicate is that our personal experiences, our lived experiences connect to our journey with sociology and that these experiences are valuable um, for the goals that we have for our discipline. So for creating a better world. (laughs) And I think that that can be done through across different fields. So we just want to make, we just want to share with people the fact that our stories matter and our Mm -hmm. stories can help us in whatever field we're in to change the world for the better. Um, And then, Also, secondly, that voices like mine and yours, Hallie, (laughs) um, our voices are very, very needed in not just sociology, but in conversations about society. I think marginalized people, people who have had family members 
like you, you know, with your their experiences in the Holocaust and you learning about all of that and your experiences as a Jewish woman and my experiences as a migrant slash immigrant, we don't know yet, um, <laughs> in a white community, um, our experiences are needed to bring new perspectives to to our discipline and our careers. The, these perspectives haven't been dominant. They haven't been the popular. They've been deemed too political, like you said. So we wanna we wanna open up more opportunities for people to like us <laughs> to add to their disciplines and to add to sociology using their experiences. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your whole story. I hope people take a lot about this because it was very interesting to learn about the nuances of just basically all that you've went through and your own lived experience and how that relates to what's going on now. Um, so I just want to say thank you for taking the time to share that. Um, and so our next episode will be one of our main episodes. It will be our episode on intellectual activism, where basically we discuss speaking truth to people versus speaking truth to power and how you need to use both of these to create social change mm -hmm. and um that would be coming out soon so please keep an eye out and yeah. thank you guys again so much for watching or listening however you're doing this and yeah see, see you next time <laughs>